Welcome back to the Afros and Eyes podcast miniseries on Radio Cherry Bomb. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and it has been awesome collaborating with Cherry Bomb to bring you interviews with amazing Black women who are feeding their communities and working towards justice and equality in food systems across the country. Today's interview is a conversation with the amazing Ian Fields-Stewart. She's a Black, queer, non-binary, trans-feminine storyteller living and working in New York City at the intersection of theater and activism. She is the powerful force behind the Okra Project, an organization holding space, providing meals, and wellness support for the Black trans community. Chefs are dispatched to homes across the city to prepare home-cooked, healthy, culturally specific meals at no cost. Most importantly, they have created a space for members of the Black trans community to feel well cared for, safe, and loved. Thank you to the folks at Traeger Grills for supporting this very special episode of Afros and Knives. We appreciate your support so much. We'll be right back with Ian Fields-Stewart after this word from Traeger Grills. It's summertime, and I love to get out of the kitchen and light up the grill. Nothing makes me happier than fire, a little smoke, and a really good char. Okay, maybe one thing makes me happier. And that's Traeger Wood Fired Grills sponsoring the Afros and Knives miniseries on Radio Cherry Bomb. I know great cooking requires great tools, and Traeger makes the best-selling wood-fired grills around. Having a Traeger grill sets you up to master the art of cooking outdoors. In addition, Traeger is making a special donation to support Kia Feeds the People, a program founded by Chef Kia Damone to fight hunger and food apartheid in Brooklyn, New York. Through education, outreach, and the redistribution of resources, Kia Feeds the People aids to empower and encourage self-sustainability. The Traeger team worked with Chef Kia last summer at a Cherry Bomb event, and they are proud to support her work, ensuring that everyone has access to the nourishment they deserve. If you'd like to learn more about Kia's initiative, visit kiacooks.com. And to learn more about Traeger, visit traegergrills.com and be sure to sign up for their pro classes and to grab a few new recipes while you're there. Now here is my conversation with Ian Field-Stewart of the Okra Project. Hey, beautiful people. My name is Ian Field-Stewart. I use they, them, she, her pronouns, and I am the founder of the Okra Project. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I went to college in Bloomington, Illinois at Illinois Western University for four years, getting my degree in musical theater. About two years into that program, I realized that they did not know what to do with me. And so I started focusing my work on social justice and theater for social justice. I moved to New York a month after graduation. I've been here for five years. And yeah, that's a little bit about me. What was the catalyst for the Oakwood Project? It was December 2018. I was sitting on my couch and I was having a virtual meeting, if you can imagine such a thing. I was in an organizing meeting and there was a masked person in the space who was just sort of talking over me and I didn't really feel like I was being heard. So I just muted myself and I turned to my best friend, Nyla Sampson, who had created the Black Trans Solidarity Fund which is a reparations group dedicated to shifting the funds from the mainstream back into the hands of Black trans people. I turned to Nyla. I proposed the idea of the Okra Project to her. I said, can we raise the money through Black Trans Solidarity Fund? She said, yes. That was a Sunday. The next day was a Monday. We had a meeting set up with our first chef, uh, Malik August of Zaddy's Kitchen. We released the project on a Wednesday with the anticipation of raising about, you know, $500, you know, this was just something that I wanted to do for the holidays. 
as a way to, you know, address the fact that I have the privilege of going home to the family that raised me and feeling safe doing so. I, and, you know, and I didn't, I really didn't think it would go beyond Christmas or New Year's or anything like that. And by Friday, we had raised $6,000. The community had other plans. And so we we made the commitment then and there that we were going to run this thing until the wheels fell off. And uh, they just haven't fallen off yet. So here we are. What was, I guess, the answering that question of why it was important to you to have that space for people, it seems pretty obvious to like those of us who work in service and those of us who spend a lot of time in service to people, like why it was important to have a space, especially around the holidays, for someone to come if they aren't welcome in their own homes, if they're not welcome with their own families, like why that would be important to to anyone to be able to find community and family with people. For you, like how is the how is this project like an expression of who you are as a person? First, I must name that it has always been one of the greatest ironies of the Okra Project that I'm not the greatest cook, nor do I cook very often. That is kind of one of the greater ironies of creating the Okra Project. I think that as far as how it speaks to me as an individual, I've always valued community. I've always valued being able to sit with my sisters, siblings, brothers, and to break bread. And I've always enjoyed having other people cook for me, frankly. But also my work as an activist chiefly looks at sort of interrogating and repurposing the idea of luxury and taking that those ideas about what what is considered a luxury and making them available to the most marginalized in our community. I think that the reality of so much of what we consider luxury is actually just things that should be readily available. The luxury of seeking mental health therapy should be something available to all people, especially when we consider the rates of folks and individuals who, you know, are, there's, there's just so many studies that say, hey, by the way, you know, people need mental health therapy, or people need to have access to foods, people need rest, people need relaxation, people need to be happy. And the fact that, you know, so much of what is luxurious, is kind of all focused on giving people those things. But the fact that all of those things that are, are hard to come by or require a great deal of money, I think speaks to kind of the value that we actually place in people's lives. You know, I think that having the ability to choose someone and say, I choose you, I prioritize you, I do something to make your life easier. That's a pretty great and a powerful and a beautiful sentiment and a statement. And it makes me feel good. I think that in general, that's kind of a lot of what the Okra Project is all about. Is like, I just want people, I just want black trans people to feel good. It's a luxury, I think, across the board for women in general, though I feel good in myself and in my body and in my life at this point. And it's like, it's such a thing that we all, that we aspire to feel good in our person. So to create an environment and a space that encourages that and elevates that as a, to a place of importance is a, a Thank you. You know, I just want to throw that gratitude out there to you. Like, thank you for prioritizing that and making it important that we do that and that people recognize like it is necessary for life and for you to do your best work to in order in order to do that, you need to have this space to take care of yourself and to prioritize your health and prioritize your happiness. So yes, so I mean I just want to say thank you for that. But that just makes a that I think it builds a better human being. And I did note the hashtag by okra. Are you guys in a kitchen right now? Or are you able to be in the space at this point? No, we are not able to be in people's physical homes. It's just not safe. 
And so what we've done instead is create the Nina Pop and Tony McDade Mental Health Recovery Funds, which provide Black trans people who are protesting and or mourning with one-time 100% free um, mental health therapy sessions with a Black therapist. I think it's essential. I think it's essential that we just have access to therapy on the whole. You know, and I also, I, I do want to quickly give a quick shout out to um, Niva Costa and Fanny Sosa, who created the Black Power Naps exhibit, which was essentially this installation piece that I experienced in New York. And what it was, was all about sort of embracing, prioritizing and destigmatizing like Black laziness and Black kind of rest it was all like these enormous beds or these enormous like, you know, hammocks or cots or all the, like all these different, like, like really luxurious, really soft, really just like sink into the, sink into them kind of like deliciously wonderful things that you could just, that all of these, you know, grown black people was just walk, you know, walking around and laying on and resting on. And that exhibit really had a powerful impact on me. I walked out of it feeling so healed and I was just like, wow, like I walked in so stressed and tight and suddenly I'm walking back. And even as I walked back into the world, just back into the street in general, like I just felt, you know, all of the tension of the world starting to like creep back in. And I just thought like, wow, like I need access to this 24 seven. Like I just need to be able to come here for an hour a day and just lay down and rest and relax and not do anything and turn off my phone and disconnect from the world. And I think that, that that has informed a lot of sort of my um, my activism and my my viewpoint of the kind of things that I'm really invested in doing because I was just like we are rightfully so so focused on you know policies and institutional structures and institutional changes and while I absolutely can talk about all of those things I also know that like at the end of those conversations like you don't necessarily feel good. Sometimes you can walk away from meetings and feel like, wow, like we've really come up with something here. But sometimes it's like we just gather and we just start talking and we don't walk away feeling good. And I just think, you know, we really, I mean, it is the trope. It is sort of like, you know, the, the cliche that you have one life to live, but we genuinely have one life to live. And, you know, recognizing that I myself as a Black trans woman have a life expectancy of 32 years old, you know, I'm 26 if I don't make it, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, in, in whatever plane that I move on to, you know, look back and be like, Ooh, girl, while you were alive, you really could have just like taken more naps. I'm like, let's take naps now. Black trans people deserve to take a nap. You don't have to do anything, baby. And I think that so often also like we as black people, our value is determined by what we contribute. You know, that's, I think that's another thing for black trans people as well is like, we are often, you know, having conversations about Stonewall or having conversations about Marsha or the history of Black trans people. And what I fear is that we have created a system and a world in which we can only value Black trans lives if Black trans lives have contributed to the larger movement. And I think that the reality is, is that Black trans people are allowed to do not shit. Black trans people are allowed to be unemployed, not doing nothing, and minding their business, you know? And those lives are still valuable and necessary and worthy of protecting and honoring. I just wanted to give that exhibit a shout out because it's, it had a profound effect on me. And every day I think about it and I'm like, oh, if only I could go to Black Power Naps. Why is that exhibit not a year-round thing?
There's a quote that came across my Instagram and it says that black people started to be called lazy once they stopped doing the work for free. Just that that idea that laziness is synonymous. I mean, they they created a narrative that, you know, black people are lazy. And it's just like all the black people I know are some of the hardest working people I know. You know, you have those layers of living in capitalism means that your value is directly linked to how much you produce. And then on top of that, you have kind of that stereotype racially that, oh, okay, well, you you guys don't work as hard as everyone else, which is why you're not as successful as the rest of us. You don't have the, you're not producing the dividends because you're not working as hard. And so like all of that compiled together, you have this really powerful indoctrination around work and around the value of work. That idea of rest and nourishment gets almost villainized. There's such beauty in rest. And like society's trying to get back to a place of mindfulness now where it's like, well, take a break and pause and, you know, meditate. And, you know, cause they know the mind doesn't do its best work until you're in a state of like rest and quiet. And so, you know, we're adding, they've added this kind of idea of, well, you can rest, but only for a little while. Like, I just find that to be, it's the opposite of productive. Absolutely. Because here's the thing for me also is like thinking about like Elijah McClain, who was just murdered by the police. Like the thing that's kind of coming out about him was that he played violin for stray cats. Looking at that beautiful human's face was just so, it's so heartbreaking to know what has happened to him. And also, if Elijah McClain sat in his mama's basement every day and smoked weed and played video games, that's fine too. Like that life is still valuable. Like I know some like smoke weed and stay at home kind of niggas and they mama's house. And they still don't deserve to be killed by the police or by anyone else. Like, it just breaks my heart that we that we have kind of we have to sort of. Um, and I understand the the necessity of getting the story out, but I just am so scared that we are moving into a place where black life is only valuable if it's proven to be gentle or proven to be important in whatever the way. Like right, like everything around Olawotuyan and understanding like. That baby has done so much and we must honor and give her, give her movement, give her voice, all of the things that she deserves. But if that baby had not done a dang thing but be a 19-year-old child, let that baby be a 19-year-old child. Like, we should not have 19-year-old children who are out here just like in the movement. I mean, and thank God we do because the children are just the way and the light. But also like, if only what you all if all she had ever done was go to the mall with her friends and kiki and cut up and you know eat some Mrs. Fields cookies with extra icing on them and you know every now and then she'd like told her mama you know oh yeah I'm going to so and so's house but really she was sneaking out to go hang out with her little partner her little friend whoever that was you know one of her little friends or whatever let that baby be a baby my God like I don't want us to move into a place where. We have to prove Black life is worthy. If you Black, you're worthy. I mean, now, some of Black people, y'all got to do a little bit better, but that's about how y'all move in, ter- in terms of the people, not in terms of the value of your life. But, you know, not all skin folk is kin folk. I'm very aware of that. But, you know, but at the same time, all of our lives have value and they deserve to be treated as such. And if they're not being treated as such, we deserve to bring this shit to the ground. I think that's the new conversation. Unfortunately, it has to be a new conversation. You know, when people get into the, the debate of like, well, all lives matter. I'm like, yeah, okay, I hear you saying that, but you don't really mean it. You mean lives that are of value to you, 
lives that benefit you directly, lives that you feel safe around. Like there's a lot of conditions. And so for me, it's like, we have to have a new conversation about, look, the fact that this person's here is enough. We shouldn't have to qualify it in order to make people feel better. I guess back to the food part, because that's why, you know, that, that that's what lights my life up is the opportunity to feed someone has always been the reason why I got into the work I do. To find a chef to take this on and to partner with someone, and because it happened so quickly, the chef you ended up in partnership with, did you have a prior relationship or did that, you know, were you kind of in an activism space together at some point and you just knew about who they were or did they, was it just someone that everyone knew was like, they can do this. Like if you're going to, if we're going to attempt this, this is, this is the chef you want. Malik was someone that I had known for a while. Like we went to a a queer prom together. Uh, We had been in community together. Malik was a friend, you know, and yeah, Malik, Malik was someone who like I just knew would be great, great for it. And they absolutely were. And they were instrumental in kind of setting us up for success for that first embarkment is the word that comes to mind. But I think that that's far too bougie. Like I said, I mean, so much of what we are doing here is that like, this is community. These are the folks that we break bread with all the time. These are the folks that we are already in community with. Now, did you have any specifics about like how the meal was, how meals needed to be served? Because I knew it was like, you know, because it was only supposed to be kind of a one-time thing and it grew into something much bigger. Did you have an idea of how you wanted that to like play out and like what you wanted served and what the menu was going to be? Or did you kind of just, this is what I want done. I trust you to do what you do. The process is basically that when we are doing a direct services, we ask our chefs to come up with a, a menu. And then when a community member reaches out, we send the community member the menu and ask like, what do you want? And then that chef will cook that for them. We don't really want to micromanage folks. Like we let the chefs kind of lead the way. You know, we do say like, you know, we're serving healthy, home-cooked, culturally specific meals. And so that those are kind of the only real like frameworks that we are working within. But we're certainly not trying to stigmatize like what healthy looks like, you know, or um, I mean, and, and to be perfectly frank with you, I'm not quite sure what this is, but it seems like every black trans chef is vegan. So, you know, which is not to say that veganism like instantly means like health, because I think that it's important that we, you know, addressing this, cult, you know, this culture's like intense dedication to fat phobia. I think it's important that we address that, like, you know, the, the term healthy can be very, very convoluted. So I want to be clear that's not like that's not what we're about at all. But just making sure that like they are that the food is prepared in ways that fill people with good, you know, and that can look like a lot of different things. Sometimes that means like that it, it reminds someone of home or of something that they have had before. Sometimes it just means like it's just something that tastes good. Well, you know what? Like in the end, all chefs, that's the job. Like it has to taste good. When they go, oh, what do you eat when you're home? I'm like, you'd be so surprised. Like, for me, it's really about, does it taste good? Like, it doesn't matter what it looks like. If they all go on a single bowl, it has to taste good above all else. And it has to, like, nourish a person in a way that is not necessarily looking at, like, nutrients in that way, but looking at, like, the the, the spirit of the thing, where it's like, no, they walk away from that meal feeling taken care of. And that's, like, the, the if you're doing it right, that should translate um, in such a way. So the service itself, is is it a meal service where a meal gets like delivered to someone or do they actually have to come to a location and yeah, and then get served that way? Our direct services is a chef going into the home because the whole purpose of it is not just to kind of have someone drop off a meal for you. It's not to have like 
the whole reason that we hire specifically black trans chefs is because, and, and the whole reason I started in the first place was the idea that, you know, if you're feeling alone during the holiday, wouldn't it be nice to, ha- and like, you can't go home and have like, you know, your mom or someone that you call your mom that cook for you. Wouldn't it be nice to have someone who looks, loves and lives like you to cook for you? I mean, I, I was adopted by a white family um, at birth. And so I've, I've never really had the experience of, fond you know holiday memories of like being at a table where everyone looked like me and like I could see myself but but just basically I've I just never had the experience of like looking in my mother's face or in like any family member and like seeing pieces of myself there I see it in my personality but I think that that is like I think you know if going back to sort of an, an original question you asked me about why like specifically this work I think like you know, what it says about me is that I've grown up not having that experience. And so I want to give that experience to other people, whether they have it or not, you know, it's just the joy of being able to look at someone who's cooking a meal for you, who's chosen you and to see a piece of yourself in them. I think that there can be nothing more beautiful and powerful. And I mean, that's why I seek, you know, black partnership and black love. And why, you know, when I have been invited into the homes of like my friends who are black and the into black families, like it's such a special experience for me because I see a part of myself reflected back at me. Okay, so and now I'm clear about what the service is, or what? No, it's an actual chef going into someone's home, which is one of the sexiest descriptions for a meal service I've heard in a long time. And after you know, I've worked as a private chef before, and it's still not the same thing as what you were doing. Like there's a very specific intention there, and most times, like you know, if I got hired on by a client, you know, we go back and forth between menus, they'd approve it, I'd show up, I cook the meal, and I leave. And there really isn't an like another level of interpersonal connection outside of like me being pleasant and, you know, charming and making sure their food is hot and it tastes delicious and I'm not an absolute jackass. Like that's really the only requirement. That's why we have black trans chefs who are there. It's like, it's about community. It's about feeding souls, not feeding bellies. Exactly. And so like that extra bit, like that's, that's for me, like that's kind of the, the sexier component. Like there's an extra moment for people to connect that I think a lot of chefs would be, would be, would be envious of like not being able to connect with a diner in that way in a restaurant or even in like a catering scenario or in the private chef scenario. Like we don't, we don't get those chances to do that because most of our clients and diners aren't necessarily um, connecting with us personally because we share anything. We don't share a commonality except for like we're hungry and we like to eat. So past that, there's really no sense of community. And I think that's something that is missing from the food world in the professional space, is that if we could see more of that in restaurants, if we could see more of that, you know, in the food, in the, the eating experience, I think we would make, it would make for a much richer experience. So I, I definitely love like the, the base of that, like where it comes from. And you can tell there's a tremendous amount of like heart and soul in the experience and it's not just about the food so yeah that's that's an incredible that's an incredible service to to the black trans community and to any community of people who can get it i think there's so many communities that could use that level of connection and intimacy in their in their food and in their dining that we could definitely see healthier i think healthier people for it um now have you were you an activist before this or were you or did this kind of turn into like did it make you an activist no i was um let me say that i had been activated before that like i had organized like a a student die-in around like when black lives matter like kind of first happened at my school like i organized a die-in there 
I have always been someone who had a big mouth and didn't like when I saw injustice happening and always felt a need to like push back against like the system. And so I think in many ways, like I was always sort of set up to be an activist and, and like my mother is an environmental justice activist. She's the executive director of a nonprofit. And so like, I've kind of grown up with, you know, knowing and seeing, and it really isn't until recently that I've even realized that like, she is absolutely an activist, you know, but like, because to me, all I knew was like, you know, there's my mother is an executive director and every year there's the dreaded thing called grant season when our dining room table becomes covered in papers and folders and she gets very stressed out, which is also which revealing a little of my own personal trauma of why I absolutely can never apply for grants because I'm like, uh, uh-uh, no, that's childhood trauma shit. I, do, I remember <laughs> that. I remember those days. I've been invested in activism for a long time. Like I've worked at theaters that were doing social justice work. I've, you know, gone into uh, the Rosen Singer Center at Rikers Island, working with incarcerated women and trans trans women. I've been activated and active in in the work for a while now, but I think that Oka Project has allowed me to kind of become a shot caller. And what I mean by that, I don't mean like kind of in the capitalistic sense of like, you know, I'm, I have like own businesses and things like that. What I more mean is that it's like, I have for a very long time seen that the world wasn't just. To me, the solutions have seemed simple. And the fact that we spend so much time like trying to philosophize our way around it is infinitely infuriating. I've wanted to become a shot caller for a while because I wanted to be able to say, no, because here's the thing. It's very simple. You need food. Where, where are the ingredients? Oh, this person has ingredients. Great. Let's put you two together. You know? Oh, you're hungry? Great. You need a chef. Where's the chef? The chef is right there. Where's the money? Well, this person's raising money over here. Great. Money to the chef, chef to person, person is fed. It is it is just always infuriating to me. Like not to not to kind of like not in like sort of like a capitalistic like, you know, result-driven way, but it is just wildly infuriating to me to constantly see like the world act like like these, like there are things to debate, like, oh, like, should we, should we have a vote about whether, you know, LGBTQ people should be discriminated against for like, for their work? Ab- like, why is that a conversation? The answer is no. It's very simple. Mind your business. It doesn't affect you. Literally leave people alone. Yet the things that actually, the things that, as you can tell, I am still infuriated by these things, but like the things that actually matter, the things that actually like, like, oh, should we, uh, ha- should we have a conversation about how to create, like, community alternatives to the police system that is literally birthed out of slavery and continues to keep that system propagated? Like, yeah, that's something we can debate about. We can have deep conversations about that. Like, should the police exist? No, of course not. They are literally slave drivers. That is what they are there for. But it, it is just so wildly infuriating to me that we can have, like, evidence after evidence, like, documentary after documentary like child like there is just no need we don't need another another book by another scholar not that these are not that they're not great but we as black people are so evolved like we are divinity we are ready to talk about deeper shit and the fact that we continuously have to be in conversations and, and also to be fair we don't we can get ourselves free by ourselves and we will but the fact that like as a society, as a working society that is full of, you know, a, a plethora of identities and experiences and people and places and things, you know, 
to know that we are still debating things as basic, as utterly simple, as whether or not women should be paid the same amount as men for the same amount of work. I don't have the time. People are dying. People, our lives are at stake here. I don't have time to worry about whether or not Mary Jo is getting the same amount as Bobby Lee. I don't care. It's very simple. Mary Jo did the work. Mary Jo gets the money. Can we move on now? And the fact that that is not in place and the, like, it's just like, okay, well, great. Then that is misogyny. That is racism. That is X, Y, Z. And the fact that, and then, and then even in that, that they dare to disrespect us to our face and try to debate us on these things. I, I have made a commitment a, a long time ago that I will not debate things that are not worth debating because when I debate something, it, it gives the other side a level of credence because you can't debate something unless you believe there's something worth debating. I ain't going to debate things that are not worth debating. The prison, the prison industrial complex should not exist. It should, like, we should, there should be no jails. The, the, the police should not exist. They are contemporary slave drivers. We need community alternatives and they are all available to us. Let's talk about what it actually means to be everything that we were like fed as children that this country is supposedly as, that this world is, to be frank. But it's true. I think we, I think in an effort to distract people from greater issues and an effort to, it, it is, it gets uh, convoluted and it gets more complicated than it should be. But I think a lot of it is driven by this idea that if we can distract people with like the minutia and the busy work, we won't actually have to make any real changes. It'll always seem like we're busy, but not making progress. So like, let's continue to waste people's time talking about things that we know better about like we know you should pay pay paying people for the work they do should not be something that's up for debate like you did the work you pay the person let's move on but if i can throw that conversation in there and make in you know between two people and make them argue about it then i can step away and go finish what i'm doing on my agenda and by the time you're done arguing about it i've made three or four moves that you didn't even see coming because you were arguing about you know, something that really means nothing, that we all know the answer to that question. And, you know, like with policing, I'm like, there was a time before a modern day police force. There was a time before slave patrol. There was a time before those institutions existed and no one felt them necessary then. But all of a sudden you had to protect your assets. You had to protect your, the, your product. And now we have to figure out a way to manage, you know, these, these, this product that we have put, that we've imported in from Africa. And so, you know, for me, I'm like, look, black people were not considered human beings. We were considered a part of a, a, a production. We were part of, we were considered part, we were a product essentially. And so whenever you go to protect your assets, if you're protecting your home from burglary or whatever, you put in a security system, you put in an alarm system, you depend on the local police to you know, protect you from any type of major crime. And you know, it's essentially the same thing. It was like, well, we have these assets that we got in or we brought them in on boats. It was very expensive. And now they're here helping us produce things that we're taking credit for that we didn't create ourselves. But yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, every single time someone wants to talk about this and I'm just like, look, I am not here for, to help you do that work. That's what libraries and Google are for. So if you want to spend some hours digging into like your real, like real U.S. history, you have the opportunity that information is available. All I tell people to do is to start with the Virginia slave code. 
and once you get once you start there all it's it, it unearths a world of pain and hate and crazy that you have you would not believe and once they once once people dig into that and i hear back from someone they're just like i just didn't i'm like they legislated this stuff it wasn't about whether you like black people it wasn't about if you hated black people it has nothing to do with your feelings towards black people it has everything to do with a 300 billion dollar business that is what slavery was and i was just like it's 300 billion dollars that is a lot of money and people are motivated to protect that kind of dollar so they legislate ways like they legislate things now i'm like you know when cell phones came into existence they had to figure fcc had to figure out a way to regulate that stuff i'm like slavery was no different so when people start to have these conversations i'm just like but every other industry evolves they evolve their policies they evolve their methods and strangely enough this is the one that has it it just turns into new versions of itself. So now we've gotten rid of actual institutional slavery and now we have the, the in prison industrial complex. They're just mirrors of each other. And so like now that people are kind of waking up, I mean, the, the amount of anger on these interwebs right now about the fact that, oh, we didn't even learn about this in school. And I'm just like, there's so much you don't learn in public school. Public school was about training people to work in factories. It was not about teaching you anything. It made you literate enough to go get a job in your local factory. And now that that part of, of economics has gone away and we don't have, you know, that in, that industry anymore, then, you know, now that we're in the tech age, guess what? They have to think about public education all over again because you can't just train people to go work in a factory. You can't just get them barely literate and send them off to work anymore. You have to actually give them real skills and real purpose. And so that changes everything. And so, yeah, like as we've gone through history, Everything has evolved around us. I mean, you know, we have the Industrial Revolution, now we have the Tech Revolution, and the one thing that has not revolved, has not evolved is essentially those principles that were that built the country, which is the ones that allowed slavery to be protected. What you have to do is do the work yourself, take a deep breath, and decide that when the time comes to dismantle a system like this, that you are prepared to pay the cost of that, because it will cost people a lot more than they think. Because also, if you think that we're going to vote for abolition, that is a joke. You know, that is absolutely not going to happen. Abolition is going to happen because the people demand that it happens. What is happening right now in the streets, and like, I've been seeing people talk about, you know, oh, like the timelines have gone back to normal, quote unquote, which I was like, hmm. And I'm realizing, you know, and now it's like, you know, I'm realizing like, oh, like there are people who are just like, they're not seeing anything from the, about the protests anymore. And I'm like, oh. Okay, but the protests are still happening and people are still showing up. So like, you know, it's just, it's very interesting to me kind of the narratives that exist out there. And I think that it's like, well, you know, nothing actually changed. We just talked because we're all about talking. They announced, I think the governor in Colorado, I mean, they got rid of their um, immunity clause for the police department there. You're seeing these small trickles. And I think what people are missing is consistency across the board. Like there's no general consensus. And I don't think, you know, in the country we live in, I don't think you're ever going to get a general consensus about anything. You can't get a general consensus about COVID-19 at this point. So it's just like, you know, there's people who are like, I'm not wearing a mask. I am wearing it. So it's like, there's no general consensus about that. Like something as basic as just human health and not contracting a very vicious and aggressive virus people are, have all different thoughts about that. And so I imagine like the, all these conversations are going to have those same, that same energy 
And it's like, unfortunately, like we are, you get back into that circle of, okay, should all people have access to food? Why are we having that conversation? Like, why is it a conversation? It's not so much should they, it's how should we? How do we? Where we need hows, we need solutions to the to the to the obvious problems, and we don't need to talk about the problem. The fact that the problem exists is enough. Like, okay, not everyone has access to not just food but healthy food, so that's problematic, and everyone should agree that that is problematic. And the thing we should be putting our energy towards is a, a solution. So it's like everyone should be able to have access to a hot meal. Everyone should be able to have access to like dignity with that meal. Like, you know, I've seen some community programs pop up and, you know, we're going to feed people. And then you get into the space and the place isn't clean. The volunteers speak to people any way they want to. There's just a lack of respect and dignity for just human life in general. And I'm just like, so what, what service are you doing here? Then? Like no one needs your meal with a side of like attitude and judgment. Like that's not, no one has any interest in that. That's not helpful. And so, you know, and I think like that, to, you know, the fact that the Oprah Project addresses like food at its core, essentially getting someone a meal and a meal with dignity and respect and love, like that is such a huge piece of the food puzzle that is missing um, across the country. Like there's just, you know, and Black women are at the forefront of the food justice conversation. Like everyone should have access to food. Everyone should be able to have a meal with uh, respect and dignity. Like why why are we having this conversation? I'm like, you know why black women are at the forefront? It's because black, black women have been feeding this country for 400 years. So we understand that providing a meal is more than just food on the plate. And we know that, you know, even in our servitude and in our slavery, we still had to we still had to serve these meals with a smile. We still had to have a sense of dignity within ourselves. We still had to have a sense of pride. For us, food is always, you know, specifically for the Black community, food is always sacred. The meal, sharing a meal is always a sacred space. And so it deserves, a, you know, your respect and your attention and your honor. I have to thank you again, because it's, a, it's an example. It's a way to lead a, a new conversation around food equality and food justice I don't think people are thinking about and um it's, it's another way to to execute that and get a meal in front of someone and not just the calories but the the energy and to you know have an exchange with someone and make sure they feel like a person that, that people see them and there's like that the fastest way to do that is to serve someone a meal and so you know like while it might have again it might have felt like it was supposed to be a one-time thing but the universe obviously had other plans the universe, the neighbors, the ancestors, the community, everybody done said, oh, no, you're going to do this. I was like, I mean, I could also be cast in a play and just wear pretty dresses. And they, they said, no, 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 no. You're doing the Oprah Project. I was like, oh, okay. But I can still do the theater thing. And they said, yes, yes, you can. But you're going to do the Oprah Project, too. I was going to ask you about theater because I've been watching my sister kind of like work her way through a couple of things that she did end up watching the Antonio Awards. And I saw your Instagram post about that debacle in that situation. Her organization is called Black Theater Kids because, you know, her being usually the only Black young person in a theater program, she realized very quickly, like, we need to have a conversation about how we, how kids enter into theater, like, to make sure that they have spaces that they can build their own portfolios and do their own work in. And it just doesn't exist at this point. She, you know, she's been called, she's been having 
Zoom meetings and conversations with all types of theater directors and theater owners for specifically youth. And, you know, all of them are like, well, what do we do? How do we? Because she's like, y'all can't keep doing hairspray. And then I'll have six, six, seven, eight uh, black kids show up and then you don't see them ever again. She's like, that's problematic. So you can't do Little Shop of Horrors and you can't do, you can't do uh, hairspray and, and, and expect that to suffice and expect that to be enough. And so she's been working really hard on like just getting people to that place where, and she's like, you know, and it's not just black children, it's kids who are, who have disabilities. Why can't a child in a wheelchair do a full gel? Like she's like, there's no reason why that shouldn't exist. Theater is important in, in the discourse of the entire world. She's like, theater is a way for us to examine ourselves, a way for us to express ourselves as a society. It tells us where we are as a people. So she's like, you know, the work of theater is very, for her is really serious. Absolutely. Well, and it's serious. And let's be honest, it's serious for everybody. Ain't no one cut on their Netflix or their Hulu during during this quarantine time. Yeah. But when it comes to funding the arts, right, or, or or when it comes to voting about things, you know, because the girls love to talk about how important the vote is, you ain't got nothing to say about the artists who are literally just who are literally taking you to a whole other world. So for like for you getting back in the theater, like making that pivot out of this space and into, you know, back into theater, what's your bridge at this point? Like, how are you putting these two worlds together for yourself? I mean, they've always kind of existed hand in hand to me because like the theater is the theater and the film industry as a whole. And like, you know, there are things to deal with, you know, there are conversations that need to be had. And also recognizing that for like a very long time, I have known that when I walk into a room, there is no way for me to walk into that room and not at some point be asked to do labor that is not part of my contract, to be like the voice, to just be the person in the room who says, hey, this is not okay or this is okay, right? Because, and, and also recognizing that like, if, if there is critique of this particular show, you know, if critique comes out about this particular show, you know who the first person they're going to point to is? Me. They're going to say, oh, well, oh, well, we have a, oh, but she said, oh, but see that, and I'm like, oh, okay, uh-huh. So what I realized pretty early on was that we have done a disservice to actors for a long time, and many people in the theater, but specifically actors and specifically Black actors, that we have made actors feel, you know, you are disposable, there's nothing special about you. There's always like, you know, 20 different versions of you on the other side. Well, here's what I realized. There actually aren't 20 different versions of me because y'all have institutionally made that, made that the case. What my dream would be was that one day I could have the experience of going to an audition and seeing a room full of like 20 different versions of me. I would love that. That sounds amazing. Because you know what that would mean? It would mean that I was supposed to be in that room. Because so often what happens is that I will be called into an audition with a thin white girl, a thick black girl, and a Middle Eastern man. And the only thing that all of us share is that we're all trans. All of us use different pronouns. All of us have completely different acting styles and completely different skill sets. And that happens over and over again. And that's really, a, that's really just like the podcast that I was on. You know, that's really just the four of us. And what we would talk about is the fact that like literally all of the time we would find ourselves in the same room 
for literally no reason, all auditioning for the same role. And so what I learned pretty quickly in, in that series of experiences is that I actually am in control and I do have some power and influence here. And I have the ability and the responsibility now that I am in the room to say, so here's the thing that doesn't work for me. Here's the thing. That's not how we're going to tell this particular story. And we can tell it another way because something else I've learned in doing like organizing work in general is that what you will find is that things that you were told were impossible when the people in power who told you that it was impossible, when they suddenly have more of a personal or even, or really a financial investment in what you're talking about, all of a sudden that thing that was impossible starts looking real possible. Now that they're, now that I can see my vacation home that I'm going to escape to while the rest of you black people like die from COVID-19, you know, now that I see a way to like, you know, add, add an extra, you know, an addition to that vacation home and it just so happens to align with this thing that you've been begging me to do. Oh, now I'm interested. Now that there's a grant attached to it, now that there are dollar signs attached to it, now I actually care. And I don't play that. I I don't know if you can tell about me, but I don't suffer fools. I just don't. And I don't have any more time for it. Like, I mean, I never had time for it before, but now I really don't have any time for it. We're literally living in completely different times and in completely different ways. And I think that we're just beginning to see kind of like how our world has transformed over the past 17,000 years that we've been in quarantine, whatever it is. The reality is, is that like there are plenty of people who for the past five, like four months or so have been just have not had jobs. Like so many people. I was one of those people. I literally, and the only reason I have a job right now is because my collective that I've been running for a year and three months suddenly got popping. I went from, I went from being a woman who had like 10 different things that I would do in a day, like wake up at, you know, 8am, be out the door by nine o'clock. And then from 10 o'clock until, you know, 10pm have like all these different things that I had to do and then come home. And now it's like, I go out one time and I'm already exhausted. Like our world has completely shifted and we have to reckon with that. And so I think that this is, this is the best time, if any, to not suffer fools. This is the best time as any to open your big mouth and say some big things. Now, in these last few moments, talk to me about where you, you know, because we have no idea when COVID-19 will let up or go away, but when that time comes, what does the Oprah Project look like for you going forward? And then how can we support the, the, your, the organization as well as yourself? Our goal and intention, and we have the money to do so now, is to open a brick and mortar location in Brooklyn. The intention is for, um, I'll, I'll kind of paint you through the, the image that the fantasy I have that always makes me so happy. You know, you go to the building and you open the door and it's, you know, an open air space full of chairs and couches and just like relaxing, you know, beautiful vibes. There's probably music playing. Um, there's a section for a DJ booth for when we have parties that we can host there. To the right, there's a door that leads to an industrial kitchen with, you know, an industrial size uh, oven and stovetop, as well as, you know, uh, two industrial fridges, one of which is for just our chef's like general ingredients. And then one is for our community partners, a lot of like local farm organizations and things like that. 
where they can store ingredients there because we always have people who want to donate food to us, but it's like we just don't have anywhere to house it, so now we would. And then in the back are a couple offices for us. And this space is run 24-7 so that um, it can be a safe haven for um, Black trans sex workers who need a safe place to be, you know, while they're um, in between shifts and in between gigs. And our chefs would come in. They would cook breakfast, lunch, dinner, maybe just lunch and dinner, maybe all three, maybe even more. But that it would be an open air community space for Black trans people to come and eat and be in fellowship and communion with each other. We have a lot of sister organizations such as For the Girls, Black Trans Travel Fund, Black Trans Femmes in the Arts, Black Trans Media, Black Trans TV, like all these kind of other like um, Black Trans run organizations. All of them can, you know, use the space for free. Any other places that want to occupy the space have to pay. But that we would just be this sort of this open location for our community to gather and to commune with each other and to eat together. And that's, and that's the vision. That's, that's what I want more than anything is just to have a place that is our place. And then as far as how people can support that vision, they can go to www.theokraproject.com. There's a link, there's a donate link there that'll take you to our fiscal sponsor, Arts Business Collaborative. And there you can find us and, you know, donate. It's a tax-deductible donation now because we are fiscally sponsored. And just keep following us at The Okra Project NYC on Instagram and at The Okra Project on Twitter. And then for me, if you want to support my work, I'm in The Bold Type. Yeah, I had a, I had a guest star role on The Bold Type. I also have, like, some one-liners on Pose as a pretty bartender and I promise that is like my official title it's not um it's not just like what I decided to call myself and then I will be in an upcoming show called Dash and Lily it's a holiday show it's on Netflix it's coming up I'm a recurring character on that keep following me on um at the free activist that's actor and activist put together keep following my work on Instagram uh through my website ianfieldstewart.com and on Twitter, I'm also just free activist. Well, thank you so much. Uh, looking forward to seeing that that brick and mortar go up. But it'll be in that space of the before and the after when people read about history and they go, oh, okay, this kind of is a history marker. Like this place exists for a very specific purpose. So yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you for your work. That's it for today's show. If you'd like to know more about the Okra Project, visit their website, theokraproject.com, or follow them on Instagram at theokraproject. You can also find Ian on Instagram at thefreeactivist. Thank you to the folks at Traeger for supporting our show. You folks are the bomb. This miniseries is brought to you in collaboration with the folks at Cherry Bomb. It is produced with help from Carrie Diamond and edited by Kat Thorelli. Our theme song is Calling Each Other Friends by Blaker. Until next time, May you be healthy, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be at peace.